Thank you for listening to Hope Fellowship Church in Jaffrey, New Hampshire. We hope you enjoy our journey through the book of Acts, exploring the many powerful actions of Jesus Christ as he continues to move and teach us through his apostles by his Holy Spirit, empowering the explosion of the church to expand from Jerusalem to Judea and Samaria to the ends of the earth, which is you and me right here and right now, where we move from spectators to participants and join with Paul in preaching the gospel with all boldness and without hindrance. Let's now join Pastor Jordan Moody in our new series, Acts, The Movement Begins. If you would like to learn more about our ministry, please visit hopejaffrey.org. We're going to be looking at his word, being fed from it, and I'm just really happy you're here today with us. So let's turn to Acts chapter 11. Acts chapter 11, verse 19, we'll begin here in a moment. In a few weeks, let's see, March 10th. It was mentioned already, there's a baptism taking place at Camp Monadnock right down the road in Jaffrey. Uh, so I would encourage you, if you're interested in baptism, reach out to me. If you want to be baptized, please connect with us. If you, I would encourage you, even if you've got young kids and all, to come to that and have them witness a baptism like that would be a beautiful thing. Uh, so I would encourage you, families and others, Come to church, go home, grab some lunch, come back, join us over at Camp Nanak around three in the afternoon, and uh, it's going to be a lot of fun. So uh, a wonderful time of testimony. It'll be a good group already getting baptized, so just, again, if you're interested in any way, reach out. It's going to be it's a really good time. Um, let's see. Anything else I'm thinking about besides all the things coming that were already mentioned coming in March and, and Easter and, and so much that's coming? Uh, but let's just uh, jump right in here into Acts chapter 11. They're picking up on our series in Acts. The movement begins. And that we're going to be looking at 10 marks of the church of Antioch. So this is verse 19. This is after a, um, the Holy Spirit has just fallen upon the Gentiles in Cornelius. And Peter goes back, reports to the church in Jerusalem about how the Gentiles have received salvation. And now we kind of shift to a different location from Jerusalem to a place in Antioch, north of there. And it says in verse 19, Now those who were scattered because of the persecution that arose over Stephen traveled as far as Phoenicia and Cyprus and Antioch. So the dispersion took place and they're being scattered around. But while they were being scattered around, they were speaking the word to no one except Jews. See that? In verse 20, but there were some of them, men of Cyrus, uh, Cyprus and Cyrene. So Cyprus, this island there in the Mediterranean, Cyrene, uh, if I recall, is northern Africa. Uh, and it says, men of Cyprus and Cyrene, who on coming to Antioch spoke to the Hellenists, that is Gentiles also, preaching the Lord Jesus. And the hand of the Lord was with them. And a great number who believed turned to the Lord. And the report of this came to the ears of the church in Jerusalem. And they sent Barnabas to Antioch to investigate. Verse 23, when he came and saw the grace of God, he was glad. And he exhorted them with, with, with all, them all to remain faithful to the Lord with steadfast purpose. For he was a good man, full of the Holy Spirit and of faith. And a great many people were added to the Lord. Church is growing, exploding. Verse 25. So Barnabas went to Tarsus to look for Saul. And when he had found him, he brought him 
to Antioch. For a whole year, they met with the church and taught a great many people. And in Antioch, the disciples were first called Christians. Verse 27 says, Now in these days, prophets came down from Jerusalem to Antioch, and one of them was named Agabus. He stood up and foretold by the Spirit that there would be a great famine over all the world. This took place in the days of Claudius. So the disciples determined, everyone according to his ability, to send relief or resources to the brothers living in Judea. And they did so, sending it to the elders by the hand of Barnabas and Saul. And now, if you would, you, you skip over the majority of chapter 12 and go to verse 25 of chapter 12. We'll be looking at chapter 12 next week, but you'll see why skipping this, it connects into the same storyline. So verse 25, this is right on the heels of Barnabas and Saul taking money uh, to, and resources to the brothers. Verse 25, and Barnabas and Saul returned from Jerusalem when they had completed their service, bringing with them John, whose other name was Mark, John Mark. Then chapter 13, verse 1 says, Now there were in the church at Antioch prophets, teachers, Barnabas, Simeon, who was called Niger, Lucius of Cyrene, Menaean, a, a lifelong friend of Herod the Tetrarch, and Saul. While they were worshiping the Lord and fasting, the Holy Spirit said, Set apart for me Barnabas and Saul for the work to which I have called them. And after fasting and praying, they laid hands on them. And sent them off. And you'll see if you were to keep reading. In verse 4 and following. They are sent out by the Holy Spirit. Although having had hands laid on them. And sent out. This is where Paul begins his first missionary journey. He'll have three major missionary journeys. We're going to be looking at. Over the next couple of months. In the following chapters of Acts. But this begins the first missionary journey. Into the Gentile world. Okay? So it's this first step. And that happens from Antioch. So before we jump into this and the 10 marks of the church of Antioch, let's, um, let's just pray before God as we've read his word. Lord, we come before you and we're humbled to sit under this word. We submit ourselves to your truth. We ask God in, our, in this moment, in our hearts, each one of us prays to you and we say, God, would you speak to us? Would you transform us? Would you change my heart today? Would you move me? today, Lord. As we say so often, God, may this not just be purely intellectual, but may this be something that is transformative. God, would you allow your word to make a difference today as it shapes us, forms us, molds us. May we submit today as your disciples, as we learn of you, as we walk in your ways and we follow where you lead. May you work powerfully among us. And God, may there be people here today that need something from you today and would you give it to them? Would you, would you pour out your blessing and your grace upon them today? We are your church. We are your people, the sheep of your pasture. Would you leave today where you would have us to go? In Jesus' name we pray, amen. All right, so Acts eleven nineteen. This is... Uh, this is the 10 marks of the church of Antioch. 
I was thinking of a way to try to illustrate this entire, this, uh, this amazing church. I've been studying this week, this church of Antioch, and it's been something that's been really impactful for me. And as I look at my, this church here and the surrounding area of the Monadnock region and thinking about what God can do. Um, I was looking online and I had seen this. It, it actually had happened a, a, um, a year ago around this time. I think it was April of 2023. And there's a... Um, there was a rocket launch that took place. I mean, many of you, I'm sure, are familiar with the developments of SpaceX, Elon Musk's kind of venture, and a lot of the efforts that they have to really pioneer some space exploration. Um, they're trying to go to Mars, right? Which is kind of nuts. Get some people out there or something. But to do that, right, they're making uh, some really pioneering, some, some new ways of uh, really reusing rockets and a whole host of things. It's pretty extraordinary. But last year around April, they test flew the um, Starship rocket. I don't know if you saw this. It's this giant rocket. It's the, literally the biggest uh, rocket and the most powerful rocket ever launched into space. The thing was extraordinarily powerful. It has two major stages. The upper stage has these distinctive fins, uh, like a starship kind of looking thing. But it's this giant rocket, super heavy. The first stage is the booster stage that has to boost it off the ground. It has to have liftoff. It has 33 Raptor engines, and it is capable capable of producing 16.7 million pounds of thrust. I don't even know what that means. Like, what in relationship is that to my Subaru? <laughs> Some of you are already mocking me and hide your heads because, right, you just think you're better than me. Whatever. You can do that. I don't care. But I'm like, what in relation? I don't know. But it's a lot, okay? And I'll tell you, my Subaru is not a lot. All right. So, but what was fascinating at this launch was the pad underneath, the launch pad was blown to bits. Uh, this pad at SpaceX's Starbase facility, Starbase, I always love it because it sounds like you're in a Star Wars movie or something, right? In South Texas, it took a beating. Uh, during the first ever test flight of this fully stacked Starship vehicle, the most powerful rocket ever built, April, oh, it was April 20th, uh, 2023. Immense power of these uh, rockets, Raptor engines blasting fire and thrust down into the ground, created this massive crater in the ground beneath the pad. It, was, it sent chunks of concrete flying all around into the gulf. There was concrete ch- flying. There was, there's this um, water tower nearby, this kind of big thing, and it was all dented on the side because concrete was being chucked right into it. And for those of you who think concrete is the strongest thing in the world, the most important thing in the world, turns out it isn't, and it couldn't withhold the uh, most powerful engine. And so it was, it was creating this massive crater in the ground beneath it as it lifted off, but it still took off. And so days later, Elon Musk and the group and SpaceX were testing a new launching pad because they knew this is not going to be feasible in the future to create giant craters in the ground every time we launch off. And so they were creating a way to fire this intense heat into the ground and to have this steel plate that is being super cooled by water simultaneously at the same time. So they're shooting massive amounts of water onto this launching pad, and they're shooting massive amounts of fuel and fire and rocket fuel right onto it, so that they're trying to maintain this massive metal steel frame launching pad. 
And supposedly they have it still in tests and it's working and all these kinds of things. But it, it just got me thinking, this kind of way of thinking through it is that this launching pad is so vital, it's so important. That rocket cannot take off really at a regular pace. Cannot, it, would, it did not aim to be able to accomplish the kind of thrust that it needed without that launching pad. And for me, this word launching pad just kept coming around when I'm thinking about this church of Antioch. Uh, this church of Antioch becomes the launching pad for the gospel into the exploration of the Gentile world. The church of Antioch is that, that ground upon the gospel is launched from. And, it, and it's a fascinating study in, in the ch- history of the church where we see the church of Antioch specifically not seeing themselves as uh, centrally, inwardly focused, but having very much of an outward focus of how we can go out from here. How can this church, the Church of Antioch, become a place that is a uh, uh, a headquarters, an outpost for the gospel to go even further than it had before? And I think it's important for us to consider even our own church today, as we're going to be looking at 10 marks here. We're going to be going through very quickly each one. And so each one of these points, I think, draws out different areas in which the, the Church of Antioch was pioneering new things, was exploding the, in new ways. It was an extraordinarily strong and influential church. And it also exposes areas in which we are, in many ways, lining up with some of that and, and other areas where I think we as a church here at Hope Fellowship Church can improve and focus on. And yet we also have to remember, I have to keep telling myself this too, that the Church of Antioch wasn't perfect, wasn't the perfect church. They had their own issues, just like we do. And so it's one of these fascinating studies. We look at this church that is a launching pad for what is still yet to come, the missionary journeys and, and the gospel going throughout the world. And so if we look at where Antioch is, there's a, I have a map, I think, for you guys. If you guys can see this. Uh, The Church of Antioch is north of a lot of the region of Israel in which we consider today, this area. And so right up there in the corner, I think it's even right on the edge, right on the border of like modern Syria and modern Turkey, uh, north of Lebanon, north of a lot of the conflict that's going on in southern Israel and Gaza there. And so you can see that location and where it's located and the travel that occurred from, uh, from uh, the east and west and south. It, it was very much, very much like Israel is, this kind of land bridge between the different continents. And Antioch was a very important city. It was actually a very wealthy city. It was a large city. It was actually the third largest city in the region there at that time. Rome being number one. And uh, trivia question, number two was... Alexandria down in Egypt, and then the third largest city at that time uh, was Antioch up there in the north. And so you could say in our relationship to our minds, New York City is the largest city in America. Um, I think Los Angeles is number two, and then the third is Chicago. And so so you could say um, Antioch is kind of like a Chicago. That's the size that you're thinking of. Massively influential city, a large and wealthy city, successful. It was a multicultural city. It was a blending, melting pot of many different cultures, many different areas. It was home to a Roman prefect and court. Uh, There was also a large Jewish colony there. Uh, And so it becomes this center for the church's first great missionary movement. And like I have already said, a launching pad to send out missions and mission efforts and missionaries and the gospel to be proclaimed from the world, from this place. 
and resources. They send out Launchpad. They, they send out resources to other churches who are less fortunate than they are and who are in times of need. They send relief. They are generous and giving, pioneering. So that's the first point I want us to look at. Let's look at a pioneering church. You can follow along with me if you have a Bible in front of you. The notes are in front of you. You're welcome to find that on your phone as well. Um, but we're going to be kind of walking through the passage, just hitting different uh, points along as we go. We'll go quite quickly uh, through each one. I would say the first four or five we'll spend more time on than the last five. But the, this first idea, this pioneering church, as we kind of see this idea of the church really starting to do things that other people weren't doing. There's the dispersion you see in verse 19 and 20. There's this dispersion, this scattering. Persecution has happened. Just a few chapters earlier, Stephen was stoned to death. And then all from there, we have people being uh, hunted down, being persecuted. Eventually, Rome's going to start taking over this, not just the Jewish people, but Rome's going to start this and start uh, really persecuting the Christian church. So there's a scattering going on, and yet there's a spreading out that's going on. So people are leaving the centrally located areas of Judea, and they're spreading out. They're going out from there. And yet, as they were going, this kind of uh, offshoot of a Jewish religion, you could say, as many people were seeing Christianity in its earliest form as just an offshoot or a branch of Judaism. Now, this Judaism is being taken, yet it's through Jesus, right? This is a message about the Messiah, this Jesus. It's just a different branch of Judaism, many people would say. So they're out speaking the word to no one except the Jews. It says in verse 19. They were going to Phoenicia and Cyprus and Antioch they, and they, these different places. But they weren't speaking to anyone but the Jews. They are going into the synagogues and speaking to the Jews about these things, yes. But then there's a shift because what has happened? You remember last week, I believe it is, we looked at, uh, we looked at the, kind of the, the branching out from the cross that has taken place since Acts chapter 2. Some of you might have been able to be with us last week or not. Uh, in fact, I think we had that. Yes, yeah, so in Acts 2, there was this Pentecost, Acts 8, the Samaritans, and then Acts 10, the Gentiles. So if you, you go back and there's this Holy Spirit moment, the Pentecost, that happens in Acts 2. And that is where the gospel kind of begins to fledge out into the Holy Spirit is being poured out. And then as it expands, it starts to grow and the Samaritans are starting to be added in. This kind of half-breed of Jew, these people that were very looked at as traitors, this group that we don't really want to accept, they're now added in and the Holy Spirit comes to them. And then we see in Acts chapter 10 where it explodes out even further, where Cornelius and the Gentiles, Peter has this vision that what you say is, don't call anything common or unclean. What God has made, don't call it common or unclean, but rather all things are open now. This gospel is poured out. Now, these Gentiles and a Roman centurion receives the Holy Spirit. Like, those people are allowed to have the gospel too? Like, I thought it was just for us. And now all of a sudden the gospel goes to them. And then from there, it keeps going out. But this is a radical shift that over the next couple of years that are actually happening in between some of these chapters, there's still an understanding and a misunderstanding of what this is going to really look like. This is changing a lot of the way people are seeing things. And so there's... The Antioch, the Church of Antioch, it starts pioneering, getting the gospel to Gentile people. And that's where you see there's a group speaking the word to Jews, but in verse 20, and there were some of them, verse 20, there were some of them, men of Cyprus and Cyrene, who were coming to Antioch. They spoke to the Hellenists. The Hellenists is Greek speaking. Uh, these are largely Gentiles, Greek speaking Gentiles, okay? And so they're preaching, they're proclaiming the word. And uh, yet, I love what's interesting about this is that those who are pioneering this, 
in many ways are, I don't know, I just, I, I picked up on it, verse 20, in fact, that they, they don't have a name. They're just, it says men from whoever, from these places are doing this in this church of Antioch. And very few people are named. Obviously Barnabas and Saul and some of the major apostles, we know their names. These guys are unnamed. And I love it because it's just the fact that it's not about who's doing it. It's not about their kind of uh, influence and how many followers they have or whatever. It's just like these guys are out there preaching. There's a group of people proclaiming the gospel, pioneering into uncharted territory. And they're bringing the gospel to people who need it most. And they're bringing it to the Gentiles. And so I think that for me is just a comforting reminder that it's not always about the Sauls and the Barnabases and the big names of Peter. In fact, probably for the more or the large part about it, it's it's about these unnamed people who are willing to do what they believe God has called them to do. And they're willing to take the gospel wherever it needs to go. And they don't get their name down, but they are influential in pioneering this new shift, this new radical change, bringing the gospel to uncharted territory. And so I think this is is very important as we look at that. And then we we see what are they doing? How are they bringing the gospel? What way? Well, number two is they're not only just a pioneering church, they're a preaching church. It says that they were speaking, and then it shifts in verse 20 that they were preaching. So there's this speaking the gospel to the Jews, and now they are literally preaching the gospel. And if you look in the Greek, the word preaching here is rightfully translated preaching, but the word is evangelio. So it is a version of evangelion, which is the idea of evangelizing, which essentially just means gospel, good news. So when you say, what is the gospel? You're saying, what is the evangelion? What is this? And so to then take the gospel and to gospel someone is to preach them, okay? Is to evangelio them, okay? Uh, If I haven't confused you enough, that's okay. Just... Stay with me. All right, so this preaching is to gospel. They are out there preaching the gospel. And so that's a, a, an amazing way to look at this, that what, what is it that they're doing? What kind of new thing? Well, nothing really new. In fact, they're out there preaching, proclaiming the gospel of the Lord Jesus, it says. They are proclaiming, they are preaching the Lord Jesus. They are evangelizing And yet often evangelism and what that looks like takes many forms in many different ways. And yet when it comes down to it, the central core of every church, the central function of every church is the preaching of the Lord Jesus Christ. Uh, Here at Hope and here at the majority of churches you're going to go to, that has got to be the central element. There are many things that make our church different from other churches, whatever. But yet the central element that is so central is this concept of preaching the gospel preaching the Lord Jesus. And has been harped on this week and last week in the prayer and shares of just keeping things simple, of not always trying to overcomplicate things, but yet simply just getting back to preaching the Lord Jesus, preaching his incarnation, that he has come, preaching his uh, crucifixion, that he has died, preaching his resurrection, that he has risen from the dead and he lives today and he rules at the right hand of God, the Father Almighty. And now, one day, he is going to return and come again. And we are waiting for him for that. And so, this preaching of the gospel is also preaching of the kingdom, that Jesus is Lord. Notice that it is not, they're just preaching Jesus, they're preaching the Lord Jesus, verse 20. 
So this is a message that Jesus is Lord. And that rubs up against a lot of things that are going on, especially in Antioch, as it was a multicultural, multi-religious kind of area, uh, a pluralism and taking all sorts of gods in together as one, which would have been a popularized in that time and even in our day today. They are preaching, no, no, there is one Lord, there is one God, there is one faith, the way, the truth, and the life, Jesus Christ, right? And so that message is for them. It is also for us. Jesus must be your Lord the Lord Jesus, proclaiming him. And so we see as they proclaim uh, that God blesses their church and blesses their area. So number three is that they're a blessed church. You look at verses 23, 24, we see specifically that not only this preaching, uh, it it, uh, brought out a a wonderful blessing. The church started to grow. A great number of people turned to the Lord and uh, their report came down to Jerusalem. So they sent Barnabas up to Antioch just to make sure that what was happening was legit. And they're like, "I, I hear things going on in Antioch. So they send Barnabas to investigate. Barnabas gets there and what does he find out? And he says, when he comes, he saw the grace of God and he was glad. He's out God's grace. It's like, you just know it when you see it. You know, you, you can, if you've experienced it, he goes and to, he investigates the ecclesia, the assembly that's gathering up there in Antioch. And he sees the grace of God being poured out upon these people. There's just a great blessing that they are being blessed. And they have received the blessing, not just in outward things, but that God's grace has been given to them. And that is the greatest blessing any, any one of us can receive. I don't know for you, if you've ever walked into a place. And I think maybe this can be taken the wrong way. For at times it can be like, well, I just didn't experience it in that way or whatnot. But I do know that there's been times in my life, especially even around here, where you can walk into a place, perhaps it's at a church or perhaps it's in a place and you can almost just begin to sense the spirit of God. You can begin to sense the grace of God upon a place or a person. I've had conversations with people that I've been talking with and you can just sense that God is working in their life and ministering to you through them. And I pray that that's what happens here at this church. I, I pray that that's what happens here in this place. That a sanctuary can be a place. A sanctuary where the grace of God is dispensed and given and shared with and between one another through his spirit. It's not a place where we just come to observe and be entertained and leave. But rather a place where God's grace can really be poured out and worked among us. We can give mercy to one another. We can share that spirit with each other. Look, the spirit said this to me today. I want to share that with you. Lord, the the spirit's working in this way and through the sermon and through someone else's conversation and through my own Bible reading and my study and my prayer time, God's spirit in and works and moves in this place. And it's almost as if Barnabas gets up here and he hears all these reports and rumors that are going around and he walks into the church of Antioch and he cannot help but see the fact that God's grace is working in a mighty way in this place. God is doing something. In our midst is what he experiences. And I think that's our hope and our aim as well for this place here called Hope Fellowship Church in Jaffrey, New Hampshire. That's our desire. And so there's a clear work, there's a clear movement going on. And he also sees not only the grace of God, but as Barnabas does, he's an encourager. It's essentially what his name means. He's an exhorter and an encourager. And he goes and he, he's encouraging the church And he's blessing them and he's saying that they should remain faithful and steadfast to what God has called them to do. Remain steadfast and faithful. And so he does that. And uh, as he goes, the church is blessed. And then he he in in some ways sees that there is something going on here that's going to need a little bit extra help than I have time to offer. And so he, he knows he needs help. 
So in verse 25, Barnabas went to Tarsus to look for Saul. He literally goes on a manhunt. If you remember many years prior to this, although it just seems like a few chapters ago, uh, but many years have passed in between this. Uh, in fact, I, I think it's around 10 years or so because Saul talks about his conversion. And so Saul has been off in Tarsus, his hometown, and in the region of Cilicia, which is north of Antioch, just by a bit. He's out there preaching and learning and studying and writing and all of these things. Uh, but he's gone out to there because do you remember when he got converted on the Damascus Road? Remember he was blinded and then there was this great conversion that right after that everyone wanted to kill him? <laughs> do you remember that? So Saul had been trying to kill everyone and trying to arrest everyone. And then he himself becomes changed and transformed. And then the Jews and other people, he has to flee and run from Damascus right outside the wall, lowered by a basket. So for his own safety, Barnabas says, hey, go back to your hometown. Get, just, we need some separation. Get some time. Spend some time. And so now... Barnabas, clearly led by the Spirit, goes to Tarsus, looks for Saul. Says, Saul, it's time. You've had your time over there. You've been doing your work and calling, but now it's time. God is doing something big here. He goes to Tarsus. He finds, he literally doesn't know her. I don't know why he didn't just text him, right? But he didn't. So he has to go. He looks for him. He finds him. Says, let's go back to Antioch. So they do. They come back to Antioch and they... I love this because they, they not only are a preaching church and a pioneering church and all these things, but they're also a teaching church. Look at this next point. Number four is they're a teaching church because look, for a whole year they met with the church and taught a great many people. I know sometimes these things remind me and they're comforting to me because I often read Acts and I think everything happened each, every single day. Like the next chapter was the next day. The next day, the next chapter happens. And the next day, the next chapter happens. Years are going on in between some of these chapters. In fact, while you're reading a chapter from paragraph to paragraph, months can go by. And so sometimes it's encouraging to remember that here in Antioch, it's not like just one day they woke up, then Saul, and the next day they left on a missionary journey. Here for an entire year, Saul and Barnabas are teaching the people of Antioch each and every week. Perhaps preaching in a similar way that we do today. Preaching and teaching, yet small groups. Maybe that's Sunday school. Maybe it's whatever, holding Bible studies in people's homes. This was going on. Teaching, teaching, and teaching. And I think it's a good reminder for us is, yes, the spiritual aspect of what's going on here in a church and what goes on in our own lives is vitally important. Yet God is a teaching God. He works in these ways. If you remember, Jesus comes to earth, and yet what is it the role that Jesus assumes, especially when he begins his official ministry? He operates on this earth as a rabbi. He operates as a rabbi. He calls disciples. Hey, you, Simon, follow me. They follow him and they go and they enter seminary. Okay, the seminary of Jesus Christ, which is living in and with him each and every day. And they follow him. They learn from him. He teaches them. He teaches them in parables. They sleep um, in the same areas as they travel with him, as they eat with him. They learn of him. They are becoming his disciples. And Jesus is a teaching person. He is a rabbi. He teaches so I think in some ways, as the church is an exemplification of who Jesus is and an outward display of his body here on earth, we understand that the church is also going to be a place of teaching and likewise a place of learning. I know I, I say that because I don't want to become a congregation that is just intellectual, you know, like just this, this is a mental ascent that if you can get up to this level, then you're good enough. I don't think that's the idea. There's a spiritual element happening where the Holy Spirit is also illuminating our understanding to what we're reading and studying and learning. Yet, there is also an element 
that takes some work and effort on your end, right? Because there is an effort of, I need to learn this. I need to study this. I need to read this. I need to sit and go to, right? there's There's a sense of that. And so I think it's important in Ephesians, it reminds us, Uh, That you did not learn Christ in this way, if indeed you have heard of him and have been taught by him, the truth of Jesus. It says in Ephesians 4, Matthew 28, this is the great commission. Therefore, go and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit, and doing what? And teaching them to obey everything I have commanded you. And surely I'm with you always, even to the end of the age. I think teaching is vital. It's important. I I feel like in, in many ways our church... Uh, does emphasize teaching a lot. And I think that's a wonderful thing. There are many different ways that you can learn and grow. One of our first main elements here at Hope is to know Christ. What is it to know Christ? You must know and learn and, and understand him. And then you can grow in Christ, right? And then you can serve others. And I think it's important for us to consider sometimes who is teaching you. I'm not just talking about me and myself, right? As the pastor, but... In relation to the regular daily life, who is actually teaching you? Who are you learning from? Who are you listening to? Like podcasts, YouTube, there are so many actually wonderful things out there. And there's a whole host of terrible things, right? What are you listening to? You're being shaped and transformed by someone. Who is that? Now, as a disciple of Jesus Christ, it isn't so much that you're being discipled by me or one of the elders, but the fact that we as a disciple are following Jesus. The fact is, are you following Jesus or are you just coming to church and adding a lifestyle choice into your current busy life? And really, Monday through Saturday, you're being shaped and transformed and taught and you're listening to everyone and everything else. Netflix shapes you more than Jesus Christ, you know? Like, are you listening to those things more and really being shaped and transformed by... No wonder we struggle to understand and know and grow and we feel stagnant and stuck because we aren't actually listening. We aren't actually learning. We're not being taught by anyone out in the church and from God's word, and we're not being taught by Jesus. That, that's something that I think for all of us, no matter what level you are at, wherever you are in your Christian faith and walk and journey, wherever you find yourself to be, I think we can all need that, myself included. And so what we consume, right, is what we become. What we read is what goes into our minds. What we watch is who we are, right? We You can read good things. You can watch the beauty of God's creation. You can listen to truth and you'll be shaped. You'll be formed. And that is what very much of what spiritual formation and the process of sanctification occurs. This is one element. Please don't misunderstand me that I'm just saying this is only an intellectual thing. You just simply memorize the right things, know the right answers, and then you'll be... That's not how this works. But there is an element of teaching and learning and following that go hand in hand to the spiritual work that the Spirit does within us and among his community. So look at this next point. As these disciples are growing, as these people, the church is growing, this church becomes known for the first time as Christians. Look at verse 26. Verse um, 
26 says he found him and he brought him to Antioch for a whole year. They met with the church and taught a great many people. And in Antioch, the disciples were first called Christians. This is where the churches literally, they, they were known as Christians. And Christians are only used, the term Christians only used three times in the Bible. The word disciple is used like, I don't know, hundreds of times. The word Christian is only really used three times. It's almost used as a derogatory term here. These disciples who are learners and followers of Christ, they're kind of nicknamed Christians. Oh, these little Christians, these little Christ, these little messiahs out there. Christ followers, those guys. Remember that guy that we killed on that cross is dead, right? These people think he's alive and they're following him. Well, that's, a, that's cute, right? You know? It's almost like this derogatory way of looking at it. But here they become known. In Antioch, they are known as Christians, Acts 26, we see King Agrippa. This is the second time it's used. King Agrippa said to Paul, in a short time, would you persuade me to be a Christian? Paul's preaching to King Agrippa, and he's like, in this short little time, you're going to convince me to become a Christian? Like, that's ridiculous. And then 1 Peter 4, it says that if anyone suffers as a Christian, let him not be ashamed, but rather glorify God in that name. That the name of Christ that we now absorb today as a Christian. People ask me, what kind of pastor are you? You're a pastor at a church? What kind of pastor are you? Uh, it's, a, it's a Christian church, right? Yet, what does that mean? <laughs> you know? That word Christian has become to mean so many things. Like if I were to ask you, what does Christian mean? I think, or if you were to ask you somebody on the street, that would be an interesting poll. What to you, what does Christian mean? What is the definition of Christ, right? I think the word Christian in so many different ways becomes a whole host of different things. It can become this idea of like just a voting block or a demographic, right? If you can think of evangelical Christianity, it becomes just this term for like a voting segment, right? Not like something spiritually that's actually going on or something that we find in the Bible. And I wonder sometimes if the word Christian is almost difficult for people to grasp and understand what that really is. Because first of all, today in our culture, many people are Christian in name only, right? Like there are people just, I am Christian, because that's kind of how I grew up. That's just kind of who I am casually. If I have to check a box on a religious thing, like what are you, what religious affiliation, I'm closest to Christian. But we don't live Christianly. (laughs) Our Christians behave badly, and this name of Christian becomes soiled as to like... What is that? But I wonder how many people would just say they are Christians, right? And yet I wonder how many people would say, I'm a disciple of Jesus. Right? Like John Mark Comer in his latest book talks about this a great deal. He's not really saying anything new. In fact, this is a common idea, but he just does it in a wonderful way as he communicates truth to a modern audience. And he just is saying this kind of same idea that we're preaching on today. So often we just blanket everything as Christian, and yet to the world and to society, that means almost nothing, right? In, in some ways, that word Christian can be a negative connotation. But for so many, we can see that this word Christian, for us, might more accurately portray who we really are in Christ, is that we are a disciple. We're following Jesus. We're learning of him. And so as, as a Christian, there's something to be said, but as a disciple... Disciple is a, is a learner, is a follower. Comer talks about this idea in his book in regards to the word apprenticeship. So disciple and an apprentice. If I were to use some of you, in fact, um, probably went through an apprenticeship, maybe an apprenticeship to become an electrician or whatever. You apprentice under a master electrician or what? 
least that's my understanding of how this works, okay? This is how other people have told me this works, okay? And so there's this apprenticeship. The master electrician, you learn from them. You follow them. This is exactly as many people are arguing today that this is a more accurate portrayal of what Christianity looked like in the New Testament. And I would say what Christianity ought to look like in our church. Not just that it's Christian or a voting demographic, not even that any of that's wrong. What I'm saying is that that so much is just this general catch-all. But what if you saw yourself not just blanketed Christian, but I'm a, an apprentice of Jesus. Like I, I'm just learning under him. I'm, I'm, I'm on my way to becoming that master one day, right? But I'm seeking to follow him. That goes for me. That goes for the elders. We're apprentices of Jesus. Of Jesus. We're following him and learning of him. We're studying him. We're living him. We're, we're following him. We're living in, in his lifestyle. We're do what he does. Eat what he eats, right? Go where he goes. Say what he says. This is what it means to be a little Christian, this little Christ kind of thing. This is what it really means. It means you're a disciple. It means you're an apprentice. So like I said, we're going to spend most of the time on our first five. So let's kind of fly through the final five here. This is the next one is a prophesying church. So this is an amazing thing that goes on in Agabus, this guy in verse 27. You'll actually see him pop up again in chapter 21, verse 10. Uh, you'll see him make another prophet. He's not the kind of guy you invite to parties because he's a little uh, gloomy, you know. He's, uh, he, he makes quite a gloom-filled prophecy here, uh, prediction. And then he also does the same in chapter 21. Yet he's quite accurate. And he's speaking through the Spirit. He, he says a big famine is coming. So prepare yourselves. Later on, he says that uh, he wraps himself in a belt and says that um, Paul's going to be arrested and all these things. And so... There's this beauty here that is occurring through the Spirit of God, working through preaching and, and teaching, working through the community, and then working through prophecy here in the prophet Agabus. And so he foretells this thing. In fact, Josephus writes of this famine that took place in extra-biblical literature, likely between 44 and 48 AD in the first century. There are other extra-biblical sources that cite a famine that occurred during that time. And Paul himself writes in 1 Corinthians 7 and in Galatians 2, citing the famine and the church that was in a present distress, people who were starving and in need, and how he went to Jerusalem and to other places to bring need to the brothers due to a revelation that had been revealed to him, as to the church. And so Agabus tells him, look, there's this thing going on. And this is a prophet filled with the Spirit speaking. It's not just some random dude with a YouTube channel who wants attention. Right? This is someone who is filled with the Spirit, speaking on behalf of the Spirit, and speaking truth, foretelling what will come to pass. That's a large part of what prophecy is. There's a variety of things that prophecy is. But in, at, at its base level, it is actually a foretelling. It is not even foretelling like in the future. It's just foretelling what God's promises are. It's a preaching and proclaiming of the promises of God that will come to fruition. So, so often we just think it's like only regards to like predicting a certain thing in the future. Often prophecy can be viewed as something uh, that is preached and, and given and dispensed and proclaimed about what will take place. The promises of God that will come to pass. 
That's why in the Old Testament, they're speaking on behalf of God. The prophets are proclaiming and preaching the truth of God and his promises that he's given them to say to the people. And so those things happen here. They happen in community within a church as people share what the spirit is doing among them. And as the spirit communicates through people and through a church about what he is doing in a certain locale and place. So they're a prophesying church. They're a giving church in relation to that. Look at verses 29 and 30. They're a giving church. Generous. So the disciples, as they have been preached to, as they've been taught, as they've been learning of Jesus, what do they do? They get all fat and happy? (laughs) No. They, They take in and they give out. They take in and they give out. They see their their immediate response as to what is going on. Wow, this famine is going on? Let's stockpile for ourselves. No, no. They say that there's actually, we've been blessed with a lot. They are a wealthy, influential city there in Antioch. Probably a wealthy church. And they experience immediately, they know, our friends and brothers and sisters in Jerusalem and the areas of Judea are not going to be as well off as we are. We need to help them right now. What an extraordinary outpouring of the gospel. The gospel isn't just inward focus. Look at what God has blessed me with. Let me show it off to others. You know, look, look what God has blessed us with. How can we give it to others? That's the response. And I, I just love that. And passionately, I feel like that is how we should be living our lives. Like, like what has God given to me that I can then bless others with, right? No, it's not always the same. Like, we all need to give a certain amount. No, no, no. As it says in this passage, so the disciples determined what? Everyone according to his ability. And I mean, everybody had to give the same amount. Not by the pastor said, everybody's got to give this certain, no. According to what ability God has blessed you with. Some of you, God has blessed you with more than others. That's his prerogative. And yet some of us, though you have little or have much, depending on what that is, you see what you have as not your own, but something that God has given you to meet the needs of other people. And I, I've seen that here at Hope on a regular basis. I believe this church is a very, very generous church. I believe the resources God has blessed us with are great. And yet I constantly see that money going to people, those resources, those talents, that expertise going to people. And here it goes to the elders by the hands of Barnabas and Saul. Again, they didn't have Venmo. They can't just send that thing on there. So, so they take a collection. Paul and uh, Saul and Barnabas take it down and they present it. And I see this also coming in line with the fact that they're a collaborative church. Not only are they a giving church, they're a collaborative church that they're working together. The next point is a collaborative church. Verse 25. So in chapter 12, they give, they collaborate together. And then John Mark works with him. They say in verse 25, uh, Barnabas and Saul work with the church there. They bring their collections. Then they return with John Mark. They're collaborating with other churches, working together. And I love that. It's not just about them and what they're doing, but rather what is God doing in the Monadnock region, in Jaffrey, and all the surrounding towns in New England and the Northeast? How is he growing his church? And how can we collaborate on behalf of the gospel with other churches in our region? That's something I'm constantly thinking about something I'm constantly going to conferences and different meetings of pastors in the area and in New Hampshire, getting to network with different guys that are going on. And what are they doing? What's God doing in your church? How can we help and assist in that? And I've been seeing over the last 10 years that I've been in this region working in ministry, I've seen an explosion in that. An explosion in churches networking together and connecting together to help one another in resourcing than I've ever seen before. And so that, that's something I'm actually really excited about that's going on, I believe, here right in New Hampshire. 
And then, so we see this collaborative approach. And then number nine, they're a praying church. They get together for worship. You see this in verse two and three of uh, Acts 13. They're a praying church. They're, they're, they're like worshiping together, it says here. They were fasting together. The Holy Spirit speaks to them. Hey, set apart these two guys, Barnabas and Saul. I have something special for them. They discern the movement of the Spirit. They then pray together and they lay hands on Paul and Silas. Sorry, Paul. I'm going to do this. All the names, right? Barnabas and Saul, because Saul gets named Paul later and Silas joins him anyways. So uh, Saul and Barnabas here. And they, they set them apart. They pray about it. They don't just haphazardly do things. They're seeking the spirit. They're worshiping God in faithfulness. And then they're sending out. Not only are they praying, they're discerning God's spirit, but they send out. So the number 10, the final one, no, they're praying church, but they're ascending church. As a sending church, this is amazing. This is really the, the bread and butter of Antioch. Like, this is what Antioch is known for throughout the history of the church. They are a launching pad. They are launching the gospel out into the future, the sending church. Missions, training, teaching, preaching, resourcing, sending out, sending out, sending out. And I love that concept. Yes, I'm sure the church was growing as it was. There was issues, no doubt, trying to figure out where to meet, trying to figure out how to gather, trying to figure out who's leading, who's organizing. There are so many of those things that are going on. But the fruit that we see on the outside, the fruit that we witness, the church grew, not only their church, but the church across the globe grew exponentially because the Spirit chose to work in and through these believers here in Antioch. And it says through prophets, through teachers, through Barnabas, through Simeon, through many of these men, through many of these uh, church members here, yet specifically what they see is they set apart two Barnabas and Saul, set apart them because I'm going to send them in a specific and powerful way. And here's what you say. You could say they are becoming in some ways kind of like the first missionaries. Our church right now has teams in Africa right now that are going to help resource missionaries that we are, that are extensions of our body right here in Jaffrey and the resources that we've pulled together. We resource people in Africa and in other places that are unnamed, reaching unreached people groups there in South Africa, in Africa in general. We resource people in Guatemala and Nicaragua. We resource people and ministries and nonprofits around the globe. And we're doing this because we believe the gospel is going not only to us, but to other places. And God has given us much. How can we help and resource others so that the gospel can explode and happen in other places that need that as well? in areas that are rural and difficult to get to, where the opposition to the gospel is strong, how can we help those brothers and sisters right here, right now, from where you're sitting? It's almost as if this body has an extension of our body across the globe. And and then our church, in many ways, is connected to the other Christian churches in the area who are also doing the same thing. So just like you see on that cross that is exploding out, you could see from Hope Fellowship Church the gospel exploding out across the globe. And then the church down the road that the gospel is exploding out from them across the globe. And the gospel is exploding out. And I just wonder what it looks like for God sometimes. (laughs) 
Like when he looks down and he sees, it's just in my head, he looks down and he sees all those little churches and yet he sees the little like connecting points, almost like a, a map of an airplane that's flying from location to location. And it's like all of those connecting points that it must just look like a massive web of interconnected, right? Of, of those who are following Christ, working together on the same page. And to us, no, it doesn't work like that because very often we are humans and we don't often work great together, okay? And we don't often collaborate the way we should. And we don't often, you know, get around the essentials of the gospel and work together to help people learn about Christ and grow in Christ and serve others and go. I think that's really what we're called here to do at Hope Fellowship Church and what I see already happening. And yet what I also have a, have a real burden to see happen in a greater way, if that makes any sense. I've seen a lot happen over the last couple of years, and I am seeing God do a a great number of things. As we have very much, you'll see here probably once a month, I feel like we're, we're bringing people up here. The elders are coming. We're laying hands on people, and we're sending people out. We're praying that God would work in their lives and send them out. And perhaps that's even happened for you as a member of this church. You're being sent out into your community and your area. Also as a missionary of your local area. Yet God has designated some, perhaps there's some even in this place. As I can remember being a young man, listening to a preacher many different times and feeling this tug that God wanted to do something with me different than maybe other people around me. And perhaps there's a person in here who feels a tug and a call in their heart that, that you're actually being called to go into the mission field, to go be sent out from a church congregation and bring the gospel to a place that doesn't have it yet. And I know that's how he works. The Spirit works in and through your life. Maybe that's happening in your heart even right now. And I pray that God would encourage you with that because I am seeing really Hope Fellowship Church, I love this church. I love you guys. And I'm just seeing this place become very much like I'm talking about here. I think we have much to live up to in comparison to the church of Antioch. I I look at it, I'm like, I'm not sure if I'm meeting any of those things. That list of 10, boy, that's tough. Like I said, they're not perfect. We're not very, but this idea of I'm really seeing this church become a launching pad for so many things, not just foreign missions, but local as well. And just sensing that, and I don't even know, I can't even put my finger on it. I guess I'm not even sure what exactly I'm saying, but except for the fact that the more I've been, over the last couple of years in particular, the more I've seen what God is doing in our midst that really largely depends little upon us and the leaders here at this church is just kind of amazing. And as I see people's lives transformed and the burdens that they're bringing, saying, hey, I have a passion to do this, and I want to do that, and I want to see God work in this way, in this place, and that. I just see that being expanded. And I see God doing a great work among us. Do you know what I mean? I see God really moving in ways that he hasn't done before. And I'm excited about the future. I don't know about you. You come in here. Listen, it's February 25th. This isn't the most exciting Sunday in the world, okay? It's, it's, it's spring seems like way too long, far off. Christmas was like eons ago. And we're just in the doldrums of peak, bleak midwinter, right? And so as we are in this place, yet... I'm really excited about what the future has. And I know some of you are coming in here. You had a tough week. You've had difficulties. You've faced difficulties. Yet, I guess, I guess in some ways, I was feeling in my prayer time the other day that I'm, I'm getting a little frustrated of people who talk, oh, you're a pastor in New Hampshire. Wow, that must be tough, you know? Because all, pa- all my friends pastor down south, you know? And not all of them, but well, most of them. They pastor down south. And I sometimes give them a hard time. Like, it's easy down there, man. You're in the Bible Belt. There's a church in every corner. 
I'm kind of getting sick of people just treating like New Hampshire and New England like the rough tundra. Like, I see the gospel growing in this place. I see light going out of the darkness. And I think our light makes a much bigger difference when the darkness is much greater, right? Like the light we have shines a lot brighter than when there's a, the same church on every single corner that you turn around, right? I think the churches in our area have to work closer together than other places in the country. And I just, that's my experience. I don't even know what I'm necessarily saying or trying to say, except for the fact that I see God working in our midst and I don't feel like he's just ready to stop that. I see him continuing to work and move in his spirit in our area, in Jeffrey, yet in this region, throughout New Hampshire and Massachusetts and across New England. And I just want to, I'm excited because I think he's continuing to do that. I think he's confirmed among many of us in this church and this leadership that he's not done here. And he's going to continue to grow this ministry and continue to grow it through his spirit. And he's going to make an impact with this gospel message to transform lives across New England. And I'm excited about what the next 10 years, the next 20 years is going to look like when we look back. That's exciting to see. And so I see a lot of parallels with this, and I hope you do as well. And I hope God blesses you with that this morning. Let us close in prayer. Father, we come to you today. We just looked at your word. We looked at what you did in the church of Antioch, how you worked in their midst, how you taught and you preached the truth to them. And Lord, how you grew this ministry, how you exploded it. And God, I pray that you continue to do that for the church in New England not just our church, Lord, but the church in New England, the true believers of Jesus Christ, the disciples here in New England in 2024. Would you continue to mobilize us? Would you continue to influence this region with the gospel and change lives, save people? We need you, God. I pray that you do that in our area. Continue to strengthen this church and encourage these people. May your spirit work wonders in this place. In Jesus' name, amen.